to Maritime AgCast, the podcast dedicated to the farmers and the farm community of the Maritimes. We will discuss all things related to the livestock industry with local, regional and national guests, as well as keep you up to date with current markets and industry events. Today we'll be joined by Mike McForest to discuss research and innovation adoption. Mike brings many years of experience in the livestock industry. He grew up on a farm and went to the University of Guelph and received his bachelor's degree in animal science and master's in animal breeding. Mike believes that change is an essential part of life and his career path demonstrates that. Working with the Ministry of Agriculture, Beef Farmers of Ontario, AgriCorps, AgSites, and now with the Livestock Research Innovation Corporation. Mike firmly believes that the best way to know the future is to create it. And that requires you look at forward and with your head up. Mike McMorris, thanks very much for being with us today. I'm, I'm looking very forward to one of our several long chats that we have. A thrilled to be here. I always love getting together <laughs> with you, Brad, and uh, chewing the fat, as they say. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah. Thanks. And for, for our listeners, Mike and I have known each other for roughly a decade, I would say. Met you back with your old bio days. And every time I, I get a chance to either visit Mike, which isn't very often, or get a chance to bring him here to the Maritimes to speak at an event, uh, I like to have you here. So, Mike, what's what's new with you? What are you up to today? Well, it's cold here today, but not nearly as cold as I understand it is there. Uh, when you see a weather forecast headline saying someone's getting a punch in the face, it catches your attention. So my best wishes to it'll be passed when people hear this, but uh, good luck with that cold weather. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about yourself. I know the, the listeners heard a little bit of your bio, but I don't think the five sentences I read really do justice to the Mike McMorris I know and, and what your career has really been about leading up to your current position with Elric. Sure. Uh, I grew up on a farm, uh, kind of a mixed farm. I'm old enough that that was kind of the norm back in the day. Uh, things hadn't really gone to specialization nor consolidation nearly to the, to the way they have nowadays. So that was kind of normal. Uh, University of Guelph Animal Science had a real interest in genetics. So I did a, a master's degree in animal breeding and genetics, which is fascinating to see how out of date things become because genomics wasn't even a word when I did a master's in animal breeding. So things certainly do change. I bounced around in my career. My father-in-law once gave me the advice that it's good to change jobs every five years. And I didn't believe him at the time, but I found myself doing it. And now I'm a firm believer in it. So I've worked in a, a number of spots doing extension work with the Ministry of Ag and Food, then some management positions. And then I moved to bio, which is now ag sites. And sorry, I got the order wrong. I bounced around so much. I went to Ontario Cattlemen's, which is now Beef Farmers of Ontario. Then I went to Agricor, which delivers crop insurance, uh, agri-stability, those sorts of things. Then to Bio, which is now Ag Sites. And then three years ago, moved to Livestock Research Innovation Corporation, or ELRIC. Excellent. And uh, yeah, I guess I first got to know you when you were with Bio. Uh, we were doing some uh, genetics work and uh, animal selection stuff here in the Maritimes. So most of our conversations have, have tended to be around beef and, and heifer and, and bull selection. So, and I always appreciate those. So where I'd really like to get started today in your career, what have you seen as maybe one of the things that has changed most with the research landscape? Either how research is conducted, who's actually leading the research, what have you seen? I think research has moved quite dramatically to more, I'm not sure how the right phrase is, but high-tech research. If you get into genomes, genomic analysis, artificial intelligence, modeling to improve feed pellet quality, 
that's not stuff that's easily transferred to farmers. There's a bigger gap between what is being researched and how the heck you implement that on a farm. Think back 50, 30, go back 30 years ago when I was doing beef extension, just introducing EPDs to the Ontario Bull Test Program. We did a, a road trip across Ontario with 17 producer meetings introducing what is an EPD? How do I look at this thing? How do I use it? What does it mean? We're a long, long way from that with, okay, we've now found a marker that may indicate uh, methane suppression in dairy. Okay, what farmer is going to go and listen to that talk? So it, it, there's a bigger, much bigger gap between on the farm day-to-day -day issues and the research that's being done. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I was actually at a, a dairy research session yesterday that that Steve Roche with Acer Consulting had put on the, some of the work that they're doing in coordination with Dairy Farmers of Canada. And I think the, the research that were present, was presented there was actually very farmer friendly. So one of the things that uh, Dr. Nancy McLean talked about from Dalhousie was, you know, different silage systems and cost benefit and digestibility, right? But previous to that, we were talking about passive immunity and BRICS testing for calf health and how it related to long-term productivity and longevity of, of milk cows. And, you know, to me, those are things that are high tech yet user-friendly at the same time. Does that make sense? It does. And, and I think it's when you really cut to the chase, uh, when you think of a farmer making decisions, and so you're an extension person, I want to influence your decision. That's really what extension is about. It's not really influence your decision. I want to inform you to help you make a, the best possible decision. There's a difference. Mm -hmm. And really, when you think about farmers, they're caught up very much like a lot of us in our day-to-day -day activities and what's, what's impacting me today. It could be a frozen water line. Uh, what's impacting me tomorrow? Well, it might be I need to expand my land, but the price of land has gone up, so it's becoming harder and harder. But it's really hard to look much further down the road than maybe six months. And even at the commodity organization level, and I, I speak from experience because I was general manager of Beef Farmers of Ontario, it's really hard for those organizations, try as they want, to look further out than, I think they would target 18 months, but I would venture to say that most of them have an average outlook horizon of probably six months. And why would that be? Well, think Buttergate, think the threat of African swine fever, think the latest crop conditions or you know moving hay across the country because somebody's short of hay. They're always, always more short-term emergency or really important things that need to be dealt with. So it's really harder and harder for not only farmers, but to their own organizations to look further out and see what's coming. And that that actually is the part that worries me, is that we're, we're not seeing some of the things that are coming at us and they're going to get to us faster than we think. Yeah, it, it's interesting you say that. So we obviously in the office here work with a couple of livestock groups. Uh, and I think a lot of times we think that we're looking into the future. So you know, particularly with cattle, we're, we have very specific ways that we can spend the check off on research and innovation and marketing. And we have to think about always how we're going to spend that money two years in advance. And then each year we have to put together a plan on the exact activities, you know, but you're right. You know, this morning I'm looking at CFI applications for swine depopulation and humane euthanasia. 
And that's something we've worked on for a while, but it, it never seems like we make it to the horizon because things change, right? Like we're, we're not in a static state. So how do you manage through the short term, the long-term things you need to do, but chunk them up into short-term, more accomplishable things? Um, one of the key things that I think we need to do far better, and this is, uh, if it's seen as criticism, it's criticism of everyone, including any role I've ever played. And that is, I think there's been uh, a divergence, an unhealthy divergence of industry, research, and government. And to deal with these things truly effectively, we need to have some really honest, uncomfortable conversations and then map out plans that bring what are our limited resources together that currently tend to kind of spin in those circles, not, not connecting very well. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because that's one of the things that I talk about a lot with some of our extension folks. And I, I think it's something that maybe producers don't fully understand is we know that we're under-resourced as commodity organizations, but governments and extension folks are just as under-resourced as we are. Like, for example, here in Nova Scotia, we have uh, a ruminant specialist who works with the entire province for sheep and beef. We have the same thing for fruit, one for fruit and veg. So it's not like we have, you know, I think in, and hear a lot about the old days of extension where we had egg reps traipsing around weighing cattle, right? So I guess my my question here is, we're obviously under-resourced. Do you think that we're using some of those resources more effectively than we used to? Because I'm also a firm believer that, you know, 25 years ago when the the beef extension folks would hook onto the trailer and start weighing cattle, that is not an overly effective use or was not an effective use of time. Well, yeah, it's really interesting to look at where we are today in, call, use the word extension, uh, versus when I was doing extension in the 80s. Uh, and I firmly believe that it had some pros and cons. My world is pretty gray. So just to know where I'm coming from, <laughs> I'm not a very black and white person, but I hear people speak lovingly of the good old days in extension. They were far less than perfect. Like th th that's rose colored glasses point of view, but we have evolved to a spot where most governments, and they did it different ways. We did it different in Ontario than Nova Scotia, different than others. But generally speaking, there was a wave in the 90s for governments to get out of extension. Absolutely. Um, yep. just, that's a reality. That's not a criticism. But the problem was that certainly in lots of places, I won't speak specifically to Nova Scotia, there really wasn't a good plan. So they kind of got out of it, which left a hole. And then that hole started to be filled somewhat by sector groups, somewhat by private industry. And we're involved in a study with uh, Dr. Adaharl Chowdhury at the University of Guelph. And one of the things he did is just get people in a room and say, okay, so where are we? It was fascinating to listen to the discussion, the different points of view of the history that we all lived. And if we're all under that different understanding of how we got to where we are, as much as you can't dwell on history, unless you kind of agree on that, it's really hard to move forward. But yeah, it, and one of the things I've seen as well is Let's face it, private industry is going to follow money. And so I've seen a really big difference in the supply managed sectors versus the non-supply managed sectors mm -hmm. as far as that hole for extension has been filled. It's actually to the point where 
using the word extension generally sets you off down a rabbit hole discussing, well, what is extension? Oh, no, no, it's KTT, Knowledge Translation and Transfer. No, 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 it's Knowledge Mobilization. No, it's Ag Advisory Services. So we at Elric, we actually use the word GRIP. So getting research into practice, which is, let's just stop this ridiculous, no fruit added discussion about <laughs> what does extension mean? We're really talking about, you've got research, you want to get it into practice. How do you do that? And that's a really broad spectrum that captures a whole lot of people. So and we're starting to get a little bit of traction with that, I think, and hopefully that will help people have something common they can talk about. Yeah, it, and it's interesting you say that. So one of the, the discussion points I had with a dairy farmer yesterday was there is lots of great research happening, whether it's it's A-based or exploratory research or applied research. But one of the things that often is missing is getting it out to producers. And one of the conversations we had was, you know, yesterday's session was really great. There were 45 dairy producers there from the Maritimes. There are about 600 farms. So not a lot of market penetration there, but the folks that were there found it very valuable. So well, I kind of tongue in cheek said we were talking and he said, you know, researchers should have to do KTT. And I said, well, where are all the producers that are looking for this information as well? Like the the information provision and and seeking ha- is a two way street. So we can do all we can put all the workshops on in the world unless people are coming to them or or seeking that information, then we can't bring it to you individually. Absolutely. And I want to pick up on something that uh, was said there that all researchers should do KTT. I think that's absolutely wrong. I think some of the best researchers should be left in their office with their computer or in the research station with the cows. They have no interest in KTT or extension or grip. Let's use grip. They have no no experience. They have no training. They have no background in grip. You're far better off taking what they produce and having somebody who's really good at that get that into place. That's one of the interesting things of question, debate. We haven't got the debate part yet, but so who is that? And where are they? Who who do they report to? Who pays for it? And really one of the things that those people have to be good at is really understanding the industry and knowing, okay, the time is right. There are moments when you can effectively do extension or grip in a particular topic. And if you miss that moment, it doesn't matter. The other thing is, what is success as far as numbers? Mm. What percent of producers getting that information is success? If anybody's shooting for 100, they'll, I guarantee you they will be dissatisfied because not everybody wants that information. Think of your own life. There are things that we probably should be knowing to make better decisions, but we just don't have the interest. We might not even know we don't have that interest. But that, again, gets at adult education and knowing how do you get effectively to people to help them know sometimes what they don't know they need to know. It's interesting to say that. So I know Cedric McLeod is, is a, a colleague that we both have, and we've had that conversation several times as we've tried to implement the maritime beef development and growth strategy. And, you know, I think early on we got really frustrated is why aren't people picking this up? And. I can still remember sitting in his office in Fredericton one day and going, you know, 10% is actually good market penetration for early adopters. So let's forget about trying to get to 25 and 30. Like, let's have an attainable goal that makes sense. Absolutely. And what I was um, 
I was a member of a, a webinar recently, uh, and Brad, I can send you the link and you feel free to share it. Again, Dr. Adaharl Chowdhury and the work he's doing at the University of Guelph. And it was around misinformation in the ag space. And I really wasn't sure what I was getting into, but it turned out to be, I found it really interesting. And during that conversation, it kind of dawned on me that 30 years ago, if you thought about the normal distribution of say beef producers, you would have a few, very large, a whole lot in the middle, and uh, less, really small. Although the beef industry probably was always skewed a bit towards the smaller side anyway. But if you look across a lot of livestock production sectors, it has followed the pattern of hardware stores and banks and other businesses. It's consolidated. So what do you have now? It's, it's really two peaks. You've got a few that are big and produce a big percentage of the product, they have a whole bunch of small ones who actually own a lot of land, which matters because that means that's affecting water quality and the whole environmental impact and biodiversity and some of the other things that may not be strictly production oriented. I think in the past, and I hadn't thought of it when I was doing it 30 years ago, but I think probably to some extent, the target of our extension efforts was in the middle. The middle's kind of gone. So I, it really got me thinking, so if you had resources now, who are you targeting? Uh, kind of unanswered, because I don't think we've actually started the discussion well enough to get to that question. Again, that, that's conversations that we've had. So Jonathan Ward is another guy I talk with quite a bit, and we've talked about that. So specifically in the sheep industry here in Nova Scotia, we've got 14 producers, which is 5% of all the sheep farmers in the province that make up about 60% of the production. Right. So it is it's a classic case of you've got a very small group with a large percentage and then it's like 120 make up 7 percent of the production. But when we do things, whether we're designing programs, we're developing policies, we tend to move towards the average. Right. So we say the average beef farm in Nova Scotia is 45 cows. The average ewe flock is 35 to 40, whatever it is. So everything we design is there. But really what we should be doing is creating separate programs or separate policies because the effects move towards the middle. I guess my point is you're probably going to have a negative effect on both because you're you're not influencing the change for either end of that spectrum because there is no middle anymore. Yeah, exactly. And so think that through a little further, I think there's a shift coming in livestock production where, you know, one of the key players is government and government policy. So tie that to extension, but more broadly policy. And in the past, they've tended to go towards the middle as well. Just watch though, that middle, I'm not sure, I'm not sure governments will be viewing livestock production as much through what do you produce, like meat, milk, eggs, mm -hmm. whatever as much as how much land do you have? How are you managing that land? What's your biodiversity on that land? What do you have that could be used as a carbon sink, et cetera, et cetera. Like there are a whole lot, of, I think livestock agriculture is gonna be viewed quite differently. I think it's starting to be viewed quite differently, which means then that there's probably a shift coming if there's political will to make that shift, which let's call spade a spade. Most political people in power tend to think of what's gonna be popular i.e. votes. And if you've got, I forget the numbers you said, but the vast majority are smaller producers, well, that has influenced policy in the past. But if it's more land-based and those sorts of things, then maybe that starts to make more sense depending on how much land they actually own. I, I'm going to go back to something you said a little earlier about 
you know, what is good information? So again, this is a discussion we have all the time. And, you know, I kind of blame the internet for a lot of things. And, and this is one of those ones that I blame is, you know, if we do rewind back to the 80s and 90s, you know, you're, you're probably getting the majority of your grip information from your local ag rep, maybe your veterinarian, the whether it was Guelph or McGill or the NSAC at the time, usually a university or a researcher. But now we have access to so much information via the internet. Again, you're still with those trusted sources, but, you know, I, I have a saying that every asshole with a keyboard is an expert. So how do you sort out what is good information, what is bad information, and developing those trusted sources of information, especially for specific circumstances? Yeah, um, I, and I think you hit the nail on the head. It's you need to identify your credible sources. And I grew up without the internet. I, I'm a latecomer. I'm, an, I'm not an early adopter with social media, et cetera. I think there are lots of humongous downsides with it. However, you know, I, I follow some people on Twitter and I've kind of wondered, well, why did I read that tweet? I don't know this person. Oh, it's because David Frum, who writes from the Atlantic, retweeted it. Well, I respect his opinion, therefore. It's funny how I'm transferring credibility from a respected source mm -hmm. to somebody else that there. And then, and then I got a little worried that, well, I'm not sure that's truly valid. Like, I, I don't understand how accounts get hacked and maybe it's not David Frum who's retweeting <laughs> that. And so then you start to worry about it, but it all comes down to credible sources. But part of the credible sources is actually knowing people. And one of the things I find is as those parties have kind of drifted apart because they had to, there are a lot of researchers who are really brilliant people, experts in their fields, don't know farming. They didn't grow up on a farm. Like one of the things also that's happening is even in the 80s, most of the extension people and frankly, most of the researchers grew up on a farm. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that I've met lots of recent hires at at university level who didn't grow up on a farm. So we actually started a mentorship program for early career faculty simply to get them connected to industry. Because if they don't understand the industry and know what a heifer is, yeah. and maybe, maybe get some dirt on their boots and know a few farmers that they can talk to, to build that credibility both ways, then they can do great research, but there's just, it, it's not going to go anywhere because they don't have the connections. Yeah, it, it's interesting. And this is completely not related to anything that we're talking about, but particularly in the finance banks and crown lending agencies, the insurance industry, equipment dealers, they tend to have taken that exact opposite approach and said, I need to find somebody that can talk to farmers and I can teach them to do the technical side of banking or how to sell John Deere's or how to, you know, what insurance coverage it is. I know we're talking about probably two very different pools of people, but it's interesting to see the approach that they've taken because, you know, the one thing that I've learned in, in my 20-ish years is farmers know whether or not you know what the heck you're talking about pretty quickly. And that tends to be the harder skill or language to teach to folks is the approach to farmers. I agree. And I can tell you that uh, there are some government agency who over the last Oh, two decades or so have taken the completely opposite approach that what we need are really good managers. We can teach you agriculture. That's, that's simple. Or we need somebody, you know, say delivering risk management to 
the farm sector, agriculture sector. We need people with insurance backgrounds. We can teach you farming. The, the ability to know farming and gain credibility in a farm audience is really, really key to having any success. Yeah, and I, I hope some organizations are rethinking that approach because I think it's been shown wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I just a comment you made about that, about the management side of it. I was actually sitting at our provincial ministers conference back in November. And, you know, for, even for a long time, and I'm probably more guilty than anyone, is I've always said, well, farmers need to be better managers, right? And we want to teach them management skills. And I actually think that we have that completely wrong. Right. We don't ask farmers to be veterinarians. We encourage them to hire in animal health advice. We don't ask them to be nutritionists, mechanics. So why aren't we encourage them just to farm, do the thing that they're best at and hire in a management advisor the same way they'd hire in a health advisor or a crop advisor? Yeah. I mean, it's an intriguing and I think right approach. Again, when you think about, okay, where would that work? I dare say it's pretty hard to find a sheep producer in Canada who would say, okay, I have the financial wherewithal for my operation and the interest to hire somebody to help me with management. Certainly it's an option in dairy. Again, you know, the, where are the, who has the resources to do things differently? And, and there, there are some pretty big differences. So touching on that research, I'm going to back up a, a little bit again. And you said that, um, you know, particularly industries or sectors that tend to be more profitable, at least have a little bit better cash flow, tend to be the ones that look at grip or look at research a little differently. From your experience and some of the work that you folks are doing at Alric, like the cost of research itself has increased dramatically over the last even five years. Well, the cost of people, the cost of lab space, the cost of lab equipment, how is that affecting research and you know, how do we maximize those limited industry dollars? Also knowing that cost share ratios in <coughs> research funding to industry investments have changed also in that roughly in that same time period. Yeah, for sure. The cost of research is, is definitely higher. If you think back to seventies and eighties, where it might've been, we're going to feed some steers, two types of corn silage. They've got some steers and some corn silage. Now, if you're looking at we want to find a marker that has implications on nematode resistance in sheep. Mm -hmm. uh, well, you're into sampling, you're into spe specific equipment, you're into a lab. It has definitely changed in Ontario. If anybody listening to this has a chance to get to Ontario, please look me up and we'll make sure you get to see our new livestock research facilities, mm -hmm. beef, dairy, and pork's almost done and poultry is going to be done. An investment of well over a hundred million dollars. So. We're sitting on a bit of a gold mine as far as the facilities. It again speaks to the, the cost of that research. I think too, we need to be really careful. One of my points of view on the world too, is that mankind in general is really terrible at finding the middle. We tend to do everything pendulum, whether that's politics, wild swing, right, wild swing, left, but any issue we seem to go to the extremes. We can't settle in the middle. So when good initiatives come out and they said, well, we need to deal with some things. Like we need to make sure there's good animal care at research facilities. Absolutely. Can't argue it. Should have been done a long time ago. But we have to make sure that doesn't become a bit of a drawdown on resources to make sure that happens. There are other initiatives. If you look at, some people don't like the word bureaucracy, but 
don't know what else to call it, the bureaucracy associated with research, it can drain a huge amount of resources. It's hard to talk about because immediately when you do, people think, oh, well, then you're against animal care. No, I'm not. But I think we need to look pretty hard at, so how do we implement some of these things and not drain what are pretty precious resources? The other really interesting aspect is those who have funding available for matching, putting more and more of their priorities, which is understandable, but it's kind of new. So some of the new federal funding that's available has some pretty strict requirements. All And again, not saying it's wrong, but if you're a researcher, you better be using the words climate change in your proposal these days. End of story. Did the pendulum go too far? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it's without getting into to too much of a political discussion. We I've had this discussion quite a bit, even with Steve and, and Amy last week on a, another episode that folks will be able to listen to. And, you know, a, a lot of times research programming policies, again, are done in such short, nearsighted political cycles that, you know, I've asked the question quite a bit. So we're about to roll into the Sustainable Canadian Agricultural Partnership. And from the outside, it looks exactly like the Canadian Agricultural Partnership that's about to expire in March of 2023, except for the climate change lens. So not expecting a lot of changes in the overall investment, but you're right, it's guiding everybody towards carbon sequestration, methane reduction, which I don't, don't get me wrong, I think that's a good thing, but what happens in four years when and if there's a change in political office and the focus goes away from that? So now what we've done is concentrated or so hard for five years on a single topic or a very concentrated topic, and now all of a sudden that's no longer a priority. So now we've dumped billions of dollars into this research program across multiple industries and now there's a different focus it's it's a real danger and not only what do you do but you in those four years would have built up expertise you would have hired expertise based on that it's a little bit like the question of having your it help in-house and there are pros and cons to again gray world pros and cons to that one of the pros is you can talk to them day to day and get what you want and have feedback and know the person and know you know etc However, if they're a, an expert in programming in language X, but everything shifts to Y, then you're stuck with somebody who's good at X. You don't need X anymore. You need Y. Yeah. Uh, same issue. I'm not sure how we handle it, but again, if we could stop the pendulum from swinging wildly, I don't know how we do that because it, it's everywhere. It's not just agricultural programs. It's, it's everything. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, not to to get too far down a hole or or make it sound like I don't support some of the things that happens. Like even some of the living labs activities that are happening across the country and specifically here in Nova Scotia is uh, we've got a really cool project about land swapping between horticultural producers and beef farmers to introduce grazing in the rotation and great for sequestration. But there's also other benefits like soil biodiversity and soil health that are really important to the future of agriculture, but don't necessarily fit strictly within that methane reduction, carbon sequestration. How how do we deal with those things, taking those peripheral benefits as well? I think personally, I think the livestock sector 
needs to do a much better job of positioning themselves. There are too many other people writing the story of livestock today, whether that's the CEO of Impossible Foods saying we need to get rid of all livestock, which gets, I mean, it's, if you understand livestock, it's ridiculous. But if you don't understand livestock and you hear it often enough, then you hear people on the news saying, we're way too reliant on farming. We need to, we need to get rid of farming. Okay, like I'd love to sit down with that person. So what are you going to eat? So yeah, there's, uh, I think the livestock sector needs to be much more involved, much more proactive as a livestock sector, not beef alone, but the livestock sector. The livestock sector really is a key pillar of the economy, environment, and food security. And we need to tell, we need to state that. We need to get governments to agree to it. We need to get researchers to agree to it. We need to say, here's what we're doing and we're doing better. And yeah, soil health is one that I think livestock should be, we should be banging the drum mm-hmm. very loudly on that topic. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think of our friends in the prairies and we, we talk about native grasslands and even species biodiversity, right? So having those native grasslands and non-cultivated forages, again, not directly related to climate, but, you know, for the greater good of the Canadian biosphere, probably very, very important. Yeah, definitely. And that's been talked about for a while in the West. And I think hats off to Beef Cattle Research Council, who, if you're a beef farmer listening to this and you haven't checked out their website, I think it's beefresearch.ca. Yep. Uh, some really good resources there. Another example, think about, if you look at, think about that, how that was a hole and cattle industry now have started to fill that hole. They've been banging that drum pretty loudly for quite some time around native prairies, which is great. Yeah. We need to broaden that message. So what is it in Nova Scotia? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, I haven't had a lot of chance to, to look at it specifically, but uh, Friday night at curling, we we curled against the Department of Natural Resources folks, so the forestry folks, and one of the gents was saying that uh, the province of Nova Scotia has recently announced a forestry plan around sustainability, but a look at the long-term economics of the logging industry as well, and looked at the interface between agriculture and recreation and land preservation all at the same time. You know, and and specifically to Nova Scotia, you know, half of all farmland is actually woodlot. So we look at those things. So maybe it's not native pasture, but how do we deal with cultivated land and forestry land? And maybe we can do a better job in both timber harvesting and using cattle in those systems as well, you know, in recently logged or, or harvested land. So good point. And maybe one of the, sometimes you just change your point of view 10 degrees and the world looks pretty different. But maybe instead of having sheep farmers, beef farmers, and blueberry farmers in Nova Scotia, you've got agricultural landowners. Yes. Doesn't matter what's on it. You are an agricultural landowner. That's what you have in common. And I think, I mean, it's hard for farmers who are busy day to day, wanting to engage. And I know it's a different language, but I think they really need to seize opportunities. And I know a little bit about Nova Scotia's new climate action plan. I don't know a lot of the details, but... Certainly, I think there is an opportunity. I mean, there's no point. There's no point fighting a big wave. Uh, you've mm-hmm. got to ride that wave, which means you have to get involved and get on top of that wave. And I think there, it's opportunities like that, and share your cynicism to some extent around new federal, provincial ag policies. But that's the wave. So how do we get involved and help direct that? And again, 
that's a different skill set in itself because you need somebody who can know the right people in government, speak their language, but also then know agriculture and speak their language and play that bridging role. I think that's one of the things that's missing in agriculture in general and certainly in the livestock sector is some people who are really good at that bridging role. Yeah, and um, you know, not not that I'm a, a great bridger of that either, but you know, I think that's one of the the interesting perspectives that there are a few of us here in the extended office that we've had a bit of experience at the farm level, worked in either the provincial or federal government, and now work in the NGO sector. That it, it is a completely it's a different language, and without the the proper translation, and, and there are great folks that work in you know, our provincial department of agriculture that have farming backgrounds or are current farmers. But, you know, for the, the ones that aren't, it's connecting or translating the, the government speak and the industry speak to make sure that, you know, you know, you're talking with the same thing is a bit of an art. Really quick story. When I was a grad student or a, a student at the university of Guelph, uh, between third and fourth year, I worked at the beef research station. And one day at lunch, the assistant manager who was about 10 years older than me, who had done an animal science degree, which I was, three years into, said out of the blue, you know, if I was doing it all over again, I wouldn't take animal science. And I thought he was joking, but he said, no, no, I'm serious. Really? So what would you take? And he said, psychology. And I laughed and he said, no, seriously. And I looked at him and said, what? what? He said, you know, you get out in the world and you start working in different things, no matter what it is. And you realize everything is people. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think that's what we forget, like that whole people element of things, because I can completely concur with you, Brad, industry, government, and academia are completely different worlds at this point with completely different languages. But break that down a bit. I just said industry. What industry? The, the, the sectors are completely different. They have different yes. cultures. They have different approaches. They have different points of view. They have different drivers. You can't use the same extension approach because their their outlook is different. I had a rancher once from BC and I was telling him, I think it's, this system would really help you out. And I said, would you want me, would you want it to increase weaning weights? Yeah, I'm not that interested. Are you interested in uh, making more money at, you know, more quality cats? Whatever I was throwing out there. And at the end, he's just said, I, I don't care about all that. Can it save me time? Huh. Okay. So your driver is yeah. saving time. That's all he cared yeah. about. So what is it that uh, people are interested in? What I, I want to make sure I get this in. One of the interesting things that somebody noted, and I thought that's a really good observation, is that when you're doing extension work with farmers, farmers tend to work on an annual cycle, mm-hmm. which means most farmers probably, if you're the decision maker in the farm, you've probably got, what, 30, 40 cycles? So if you screw up mm-hmm. one or two because of a bad decision that you made, that's a lot of catch up to make. So you're a little more risk averse on things because of that very real outlook on, well, what risk can I take? So one of the things that it would be good in grip would be not just, hey, this worked uh, in a research station, we think you should do it, but do that next step of proving it out in the field. So mm. I hate the phrase de-risk, but I don't know what else to call it. Kind of de-risk that decision for farmers. Yeah, it's easy to say that because one of the things I, I've made my speaking notes and um, when we were talking a little earlier, I said, I actually wrote the note that seeing is believing. Um, and with my limited experience compared to yours, like 
anytime we do things that are hands-on, on a firm demonstration purposes, there are two things. I think the people, we get better attendance. I think we get better engagement because um, it's, uh, it's an atmosphere or a setting that people are more comfortable in and not a fire hall or a hotel. And then the other thing too, when you do things on site and, and more of a demonstration is you're going to learn a lot more than the one thing you came there to learn about, you know, and one of the things I can think of very, that comes to mind right away is a few years ago, we were doing remote sheep pasturing workshop uh, with a local farmer. He had made some investments in Electronet and solar panels, and that's what everybody was there for. And then a lot of the discussion was actually came about breeding and ram selection and he's got some other enterprises so you know how does the dairy working with the sheep and you know i notice you've got some older equipment here and you're not running brand new equipment how does that pencil out and you know how does it maximize both enterprises and you just get this much more natural conversation and learning opportunity that you don't get when you you know, I stand up in front of our cattle zone meeting for an hour and spew the things off that we're working on. And, and I think at this point, three years into a pandemic where we've all done a lot of Zoom calls, we've all lived that. What do we miss? Zoom calls are incredibly efficient. You and I are having a great conversation. We'll end it. I had no travel time. Neither did you. We moved right to our next meeting, which is crazy because we're now doing way more because we're not doing travel time or anything in between. Yeah. What's missing? It's that interaction off on the side at coffee break. And I think it's safe to say, certainly my experience has been, where do the good ideas come from? Generally the, what do you think about that? Well, what about this? And then you start exploring the brains start working. And that's when the creative stuff happens. I think it's the same. Uh, you explore more, you're more open to it. And you said it, your farmers are in a setting they're far more comfortable with. They're amongst peers. Somebody commented to me that the most important part of an even in-field session is when people are walking back to the bus, talking to each other. You, you can't deny that the, the hard part is that's the most expensive kind of extension or getting research into practice. So who's yep. paying for it? Yeah, that, that's right. Like, and we've talked a lot about in the office too, you know, Zoom is great. Um, it also allows us to archive information because that's one of those things with those on-site demonstrations is unless you're there, the the information you're getting isn't archived it's only accessible once so how do you also kind of merge those things together so you're so if you're unable to attend for whatever reason that the information is not completely lost and is available to others as well and and back to the bcrc i think they're one of the organizations that does a phenomenal job at this and you know your lunch and learns is although they're not on site, they're very producer focused and the information is archived. And, and I think and, one of the things yeah. that Zoom has helped us with. Yeah, absolutely. And on top of that, you met, we are Horizon series of webinars and it started, uh, what are the big things facing the livestock sector? And uh, yeah, it's great because the videos, check out our website, anybody that's interested. Um, but then on top of that, that's, that's the 20 minute info, 20 minute question but then you've got different audiences. There might be somebody more interested. So we create a white paper and it's like five, six pages, really easy to read. But if you're interested, it kind of guides you a little further and gives you some credible sources to then check out. But then the other way of that, 
are the people who I don't want to spend 20 minutes. Just give me the give me the top three, right? So we've written on the fly, which is like a one page almost bullet point. Here are the key things. So you have to always kind of hit the the like the 30 second, the three minute, the half hour audience. Yeah, absolutely. And um and I think that that's more possible now than it was before. Um, because, you know, historically we would have concentrated online or sorry, on, in person, not online. You know, we even, even when we did do things in person, we didn't make, always make the information available outside of that. So you're right. Creating that one page or two page or infographics that I think those things are more, we have a more complete communications package now than we did two, three, five, definitely 10 years ago. Um, because we're able to provide those resources in a much more efficient manner as well. Yeah, totally agree. And again, any, if any, if anybody's listening to this and is interested in knowing more about what we do, uh, we're at livestockresearch.ca. But we also have a, a monthly newsletter, which is to send us send Brad your email. He'll send it to us. We'll sign you up on it. Um, you can read it, find interesting stuff or, or not, uh, <laughs> not every time, but it's going to find something. The other thing I do want to mention is that we have another grip related project we've been working on with Jennifer Ellis, who's a prof at the University of Guelph. Uh, one of those really bright young lights has some industry experience. She's a, an expert on, you want to read a research proposal that gets you scratching your head, read one of hers. Like it's just a great person, but wow, it's machine learning and improving pellet quality in feed mills. Oh, and yet, if we were taught, she'd be on this call talking just as casually and personally as, as us, like she's really good at that. So we've got a project with her and uh, uh, through it, we've created, and they're all on our website, uh, 10 podcasts with faculty and industry people looking at, so what have you done in innovation? What worked, what didn't? And then we have 22 producer videos asking them questions about, so where do you get innovation? How do you adopt it? How do you make decisions? So those are those are all there on our website. And then we're also, we did one last year. We're having one April 19th of this year. It, it's called a GRIP Roundtable. And um, it will be a hybrid event. So certainly if somebody's interested, please join that. We, we have one speaker confirmed. I'm not sure. We're still noodling through the agenda. But uh, some of you will have heard of Allison then. Enenman, I think I'm saying that name right. She's from UC Davis, a really good, uh, one of those people that's really good at science communication. So I think it's going to be a great event. If, if anybody's interested, just let me know. Excellent. And um, yeah, de definitely appreciate that, Mike. And um, I, I don't get a lot of time to attend some of your Horizon series, but I, I pop in when I can. Uh, and when even when I don't, I always get the follow-up email saying, here's the, here's the recording, here's the, here's the document, go and have a look. Um, we're, we're getting on in time a little bit. And one thing I'd like to touch on just real quickly, and we've already talked a, a little bit about it. And I want to go back just to the EPD conversation that you brought up earlier. And it's one of those things. So we work with the, the local bull test station and, uh, we do, we have a Vitelli grow sense system and we do RFI. And, um, one of the things that we focus on in the region a lot is genetic improvement, um, mostly through bull selection and our constant struggle, even though we've worked with, you know, the great folks at ag sites and, and you over the years is, do we have too much information, right? So we've got, a, you know, the general suite of EPDs on bulls 
is, I don't know, there's 10 or 12, but we just keep adding and adding and adding. So is there a way we can simplify those things? You know, the other conversation we have is, do bull buyers specifically know exactly what problem they're trying to fix, right? So what EPD should they be looking at? And birth weight and calving ease are not the same thing, right? So you hear it all the time. We're going to hear it April 1st at the bull sale. You know, I, I need a low birth weight bull. So I, I guess my question here is, with all the information that's available and kind of the lack of understanding or, or, or folks not really looking at it now, why, are, why do we continue to add EPDs? I mean, I get it from a data guy, like the more information we have, but we have folks that aren't even using the information now. So a couple of points. I think we do need to keep developing new EPDs. I think the challenge is that we have two, two potential users of those EPDs. One is bull buyers, and that's a really tough market because they're not generally in that world. They're not generally, they're harder to reach than bull breeders who are looking at pedigrees and, you know, genetic evaluations and whatnot. Bull, I, I had an experience once where somebody I know who buys really good bulls, pays really attention to quality. It was, it was, he was looking at a bull. I was there and uh, he was talking to the bull breeder and he, and the bull breeder kind of indicated some of the numbers and they had that on paper in front of them. And I saw this guy kind of glance at the paper and he glanced at the bull. And then he turned to the, the breeder and said, so what do you recommend? He had trust in the breeder. That's yes. what was selling him, not the EPDs. Mm -hmm. So that means the market really is the breeders. But the breeders, to some extent, are thinking, but I've already got the trust of my clients. I don't need those numbers. So there's a bit of a catch-22 there, right? So, yeah. well, then who is the audience? I think when you get a lot of numbers, it does get confusing. People don't have clear breeding objectives. I think one of the things that the beef industry should do more of, it's actually already there, is an economic index where you simply put the EPDs together into one number. You have to debate how you put the math together on that. But uh, the bio index has been around for something like 30 years. Mm -hmm. uh, Leachman uses a version of that and it's called dollar profit index. And he's mm -hmm. marketing that around the world. Uh, the dairy industry has more EPDs than the beef industry. What do they do? They have a lifetime productivity index. They're adding methane gas production, sustainability, health into it. Is it perfect? No. But does it make selection a whole heck of a lot easier? Yes. The other huge challenge in the beef sector versus the dairy sector is the dairy sector has a pretty clear economic driver. If the price of butterfat goes up and I can increase my butterfat through genetics, I get more money. That's a pretty clear driver. In the beef industry, Beyond weaning weight, what is it that a cow-calf producer is going to get anything extra for? Lower methane production? No, not now. Quality of meat? No. Uh, feedlot gain? No. Um, I can, the beef industry suffers from an, an incredibly disjointed supply chain, and, and I don't know how that resolves. There have been, ish, there have been attempts over the years to start to bridge those sectors, uh, not terribly effective to this point. Um, anyway, that, those are some thoughts on 
on EPDs. If do I have time for a really quick story, Brad? I always have time for a Mike McMorris okay. story. <laughs> so on that tour of 17 locations all over Ontario introducing EPDs, there were back in the days there were beef specialists and there were five of us. And I think at any one of the tour stops there were three of us making presentations. Like we had about four presentations. And one of them was just what is an EPD? So I was giving that presentation. It was a small crowd, uh, kind of in chairs in a bit of a semicircle. And uh, I was explaining how <clears throat> I, I entered a danger zone, which I realized afterwards, but uh, I was explaining what EPDs are, and what kinds of things you might have them for, birth weight, calving ease, that kind of thing. And then I told, you know, I personalized it a bit and said, yeah, I grew up on a farm where we didn't really have calving ease issues. So, you know, if we were using these today, we wouldn't put a lot of emphasis on that. Mm -hmm. But then I said, we just had our first child and it was a blessed experience, but horrible. It was 24 hours of labor and getting a C-section. And boy, I pay more attention to calving ease today, <laughs> which always, no matter where we were, got a chuckle and then you move on. Well, the crowd chuckled and this one little old lady sitting right in the middle, just kind of went, he, 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 and kept kept laughing. Then everybody looked at her. And then she said, well, maybe she should have used a different sire. <laughs> and I was speechless by that. Okay, you got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, understands the, the EPD part of it, at least. Yeah. Um, Mike, Mike, I've definitely taken up a, a lot of your time this morning. I appreciate it. I think we could, we could sit and chat for hours as sometimes we do. And I appreciate that. The, the last question I have, and it's always one of my favorite conversations with you is, what book are you reading and why? Ah, whoa, that's a different question. Now you're into book <laughs> recommendations. So I, I won't tell you what I'm currently reading. It's, it's a John Irving novel. I, I bounce around from kind of science to fiction. Yeah. Uh, he, he's the guy that wrote A Prayer for Owen Meany. And it's kind of, it's, it's really off the wall. I, I wouldn't recommend that one, but I'm finishing it. Uh, books I would absolutely recommend. One is, and I think it's probably the top one I'd recommend is Thank You for Being Late. Absolutely. I've recommended that for about five years. Thomas Friedman writes for the New York Times. And back in 2016, when in the States, they were trying to decide who would be the Republican candidate. And I watched this guy named Trump. And I, I was seriously, seriously questioning my sanity. Because I think either I'm going nuts or uh, millions of Americans are. So the odds on that are, well, maybe it's me. And then I read that book. And it's just, the upshot is the world is speeding up. Change is speeding up. And none of us are keeping up and it's having big, big implications and it has implications to everything we just talked about as well. So that would be my number one book recommendation. Excellent. And I had a feeling you were going to say that because I think you recommended that to me at maybe the 2018 or 19 beef industry uh, conference here in the Maritimes. And I went home and bought it and it's uh, mostly read sitting on my bookshelf currently but it, it's one of those things and and I know you're a well-read individual and I always like hearing what you're reading and or recommendations on books um so with that go ahead I'll give you one more quick one one I yep. read recently so I used to recommend I still would a book called The Gene mm. uh it's Mankind's Understanding of Genetics from 5,000 years ago to today uh fascinating I've recommended it literally dozens and dozens of people. Some find it a little sciencey. Um, there's a newer one called The Code Breaker. Uh, it's a really good book. It's by Jennifer Doudna, who was one of the co-create discoverers of CRISPR, which is genomics and genetic gene editing. 
and moving beyond livestock, but including livestock, we all need to have some little bit of knowledge of genomics and gene editing because there'll be societal questions coming at us. Certainly people younger than me, it'll be one of the main things that they're gonna be dealing with in the decades to come. Excellent. Well, with that, I thank you for very much for being with us today. I encourage anybody, if you ever see Mike McMorris on any conference agenda in your area, drop by. I think you're always worth the price of admission. It's usually and... free, so that doesn't say much, Brad. <laughs> well, <laughs> you, you said it, not me. Um, but def definitely appreciate the, the chat today. And um, if folks want to learn more about the Livestock, Livestock Research Innovation Corp or you, uh, how do they find you? Uh, they can email me directly at mmcmorris at livestockresearch.ca. Our website is livestockresearch.ca. And Brad's got more contact information. If you if you didn't get that written down or wonder about the spelling, just, just contact Brad and he'll pass you along to me. Thanks, Mike. I'm sure we'll chat again. All right. Appreciate it. Had fun. Don't want to miss any future episodes? Subscribe to a Maritime Acast today through Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast platform. This concludes another episode of Maritime AgCast. We would like to thank our producer, the Agri-Commodity Management Association, Director Ashley, as well as Matt Whitehour and Micah Dahl-Anderson of archesaudio.com for providing the music you heard during this episode. Until next time, happy farming and keep feeding the Maritimes.